get my recording going. All right, whoa. Welcome back to Church History, everyone. I know it's been a few weeks, but we're going to dive right in because yet again, what I'm going to be uncovering today is going to be covering the thousand-year period that is the medieval church, talking about medieval theology. So we will be discussing the different theological controversies, theological developments, and the key theological figureheads when talking about the medieval ages, which again, the medieval era is literally a thousand years from the fall of Rome all the way up to the Protestant Reformation. So there is a lot to unpack again. The DeLorean is going to be hot as we go back to the future, back and forth lots of times. Uh, I'm going to try and give the theological events at least in chronological order for y'all, but it's not going to be strict chronology because history is never that neat. So I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing what we do, have ears to hear, and at the time, uh, if you have questions, hold on to them, and I'll answer them at the end. So let's dive in. Father God, we're grateful that you love us. Thank you for the opportunity to teach about your providence in history during the medieval era and the developments of theology and the faults in theology that the church, particularly in the West, uh, had. I pray you would help us to see your development of your truth, the sanctifying grace of your gospel to your people. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to learn from the good and bad and ugly of history so that we might guard against repeating error and that we might continue to advance your kingdom. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so today, like I mentioned, we're going to be looking at three overarching themes. We'll be looking at the key theological figures of the medieval era. We'll be looking at the uh, key theological issues and events during the medieval era. And then lastly, we'll look at uh, some of the actual theology of the medieval era. And when we say medieval era, as a reminder, because it's been a minute, we're specifically talking about the Western European front because the East had it completely different. Uh, if you've tracked along with history lessons, we've talked about the East and West divide. It's interesting to note that the Eastern churches, the Eastern Orthodox, they never had a medieval age. They never had a Renaissance. They never had a Reformation because where they were theologically, they didn't need it. The West, on the other hand, did, and we've talked about that development of the lack of literacy and all that, so I'm not going to go unpack all of that here today, but this is specifically referring to Western churches. We're talking about West of Rome, so from Italy on all the way to Britain. That region is what we are referring to when we talk about the Western churches. And now, as you know, I'd like to be particular also when we talk about Catholic churches, because Catholic truly is you and me and everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone through faith alone. To be Catholic means to belong to the universal church. When we talk about Roman Catholic, however, that is a different marker. And it's not until, as we'll learn here just today, 1215, that we could truly define Roman Catholicism in its like coming of age. And so we got to be careful when we talk about the Catholic Church. Are we talking about the Church Universal? Are we talking about the really messed up, heretical Roman Catholic Church? So I'm going to try and be consistent. When you hear me say Catholic Church, I'm talking about everybody that truly belongs to Jesus. And then when I talk about Western churches or the Roman Catholic Church, I'm talking about the church in the West, in Europe, that began to deviate from apostolic New Testament Bible 
evangelicalism. All right, so with that way of reminder, we're going to dive into the key figures of the medieval era theologically. And again, there were many prominent men of the thousand years that spanned it. And so I could pick a whole bunch, but there are some that stand out more than others. The first one is a man named Thomas Aquinas. Raise your hand if you know that name. Many of you who have studied theology at any point do or should know that name. He's the first king of theology during the medieval era because outside of St. Augustine, Aquinas is the single most influential theologian for Roman Catholicism. He was the definitive theological dude of the day. And if you only remember one thing about Aquinas, this is what you need to remember, is that Aquinas is the architect of Roman Catholic theology. Aquinas is the architect of Roman Catholic theology. Roman Catholicism, as it is today, is what it is today because of the theological articulation and delineations of Thomas Aquinas. And if Augustine, if we could say that if Augustine poured the foundation of Roman Catholic theology, Aquinas built the cathedral. So Roman Catholicism, as it stands today, is pretty much the child of Aquinas theology. Now, Aquinas, he was born in the 1200s in the year 1225. He died in 1274, so he was only around 50-some years old. Uh, his magnum opus in his life, his chief work, is something called Summe Theologicae, which means a summary of theology. It was his systematic theology for the Western Church, and it sought to harmonize not only the teachings of the Bible, but also the theological developments of the Catholic Church of that time, as well as the early church fathers. And he never actually completed his work. Uh, at one point, he had a revelation while at Mass that his work Work, according to his words, were, quote, a piece of straw, and he stopped doing his theological work, believing that he had a vision from an angel that said, you are doing this in pride, you should stop, how dare you peer into the great mind of God, and so he stopped his summary of theology. However, the four books of the summary of theology that's still in print today, that is the Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem book of the Roman Catholic Church, still in print, uh, is still huge, even though he never finished it, uh, because of his supposed vision. Now, Aquinas is known for many things. He is, first of all, what we would call the chief scholastic or schoolman of the, fee of the medieval era. If you remember all the way back to the first lesson about the overview of the medieval ages, I talked about scholasticism a little bit, but since we learned by repetition, by way of reminder, scholasticism was a unique development in Western Europe where theologians wanted to harmonize both philosophy and reason with scripture and Catholic tradition. They said, all right, we want to prove that the Christian faith is reasonable, so let's try and reason every I and cross every T theologically and harmonize it in a package that makes sense to everyone, especially to the educated, because they believed that the scriptures were from God. God is the Logos. Christ is the Logos. He makes sense. He's reasonable. And so they believed that they should try and harmonize philosophy, reason, and the scriptures. And Aquinas is the chief poster boy for this era. Much more could be said, but I'm going to move on. But the main thing to know with scholasticism, with these schoolmen, is that they often borrowed from 
pagan philosophy to be the vehicle in which they communicated Christian truth. Up until around the 1100s, the church by and large believed that the philosopher Plato, not the Plato that you play with as kindergartners that you want to eat, uh, but Plato, how many of you know that name? They believed that this Greek pagan was almost enlightened because he talked very much like a Christian, although he was not a Christian. And they believed that his philosophical framework was the best means of communicating Christian truth. Uh, St. Augustine, whom we all love very dearly, uh, was a big Platonist. Now, in the 1100s, because of scholasticism with a revival of understanding some of the Greek classics, a renewed interest in a guy named Aristotle. How many of you know him? Aristotle came back on the scene, and the Western churches, by and large, believed, you know what? Forget Plato. Aristotle's the man. He knows how to best articulate these ideas, and we can couch them in Christian language. Aquinas was a huge disciple and believer and proponent of what we call Aristotelian. It's a big word, but the thinking of Aristotle, Aristotelian philosophy. And he did all of his understanding of the Bible and reasoning and theological work freeing the presupposition of being Aristotelian. That's important because if your foundation is off church, what we learn from church history is that your fear foundation is based on a presupposition that comes from a pagan guy and not from Hebraic Christian thinking. Uh, you're going to have a wrong trajectory. And that's what got Aquinas really in trouble. So he was first and foremost a schoolman and a student of Aristotle. But beyond that, he was the first Roman Catholic theologian to truly teach a full-orbed doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic teaching that the bread and the wine of communion, or they call the Eucharist, truly becomes the body and blood of Jesus. He was the first to really articulate that view in history. He wasn't the only, but he delved into it to a degree that no one else had prior. Additionally, Aquinas was the first to teach that the Mass was both a sacrifice as well as a sacrament of the church, which was also a step beyond what anyone else had previously taught. People had hinted at it, but he taught that in the Mass, meaning when we go to church and we take communion, in communion, the bread and the wine truly become the body and blood of Jesus. And by virtue of God working through the priest, Jesus is re-sacrificed to forgive your sin in time and space. The Roman Catholic Church's thinking and articulation and apologetic of that view today comes from Aquinas himself. Aquinas additionally defined or redefined the doctrines of grace and sin for the Western churches and the Roman Catholic Church. He said that sin is either what we call venial, meaning a pardonable sin, or it's a mortal sin, which means a damning sin, that if you commit it, you lose grace and you're outside of the people of God. And we're going to unpack, as we talk about the theology of the medieval era, Towards the end, we're going to unpack that more, so bear with me, but we're just moving on. I'm highlighting Aquinas and the other key figures. Uh, Aquinas was also significant because he was unique in his intrinsic articulation of a key Roman Catholic concept called the Treasury of Merit. How many of you have ever heard of that before? You might have heard of it because Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, one of the key things that he attacked was the selling of indulgences. 
How many of you have heard that? I'm sure most of you have. The selling of indulgences. The, the Pope writes on a piece of paper that he's going to borrow righteousness from a treasury of merit to apply to this behalf of the penitent sinner to give them relief from hell or purgatory. Aquinas is the first to teach and eventually solidify as official Roman Catholic dogma the treasury of merit. It begins in the 1200s with Aquinas. And as you know, there's a lot of issues with that, and we're going to talk about that more in a moment. Now, many of the theological issues I'll discuss today come from Aquinas. A lot of it. He's the chief poster boy. He is the definitive Roman Catholic apologist, the definitive Roman Catholic theologian. They borrow from him, just like we might say the definitive uh, Reformed theologian is Calvin, and we indebted to him for our understanding and framework. Aquinas is that for the Roman Catholics. But... We're going to move on. Much more can be said, but time doesn't permit. Next, after Aquinas, is a guy named Anselm. Anselm. Now, if you're a nerd and play video games and play Kingdom Hearts, we're not talking about Anselm, the chief villain of the Kingdom Hearts series, which my boys are playing because we're heathens. But it's a great series if you don't know. It has, has a kid named Sora, and he does uh, adventures going to different Disney worlds, and you have King Mickey, and there's darkness and light and... and Believing in the heart of the cards, all that. Anyway, I'll shut up with my nerdum. But yeah, it's really good. Anselm, not Ansem, is the next major theological player in the medieval era. He was born in the early uh, 1000s. He died in 1109. Now, as a man, all of his contemporaries said that Anselm himself was considered to be a very blameless, passionate, and wise man among his contemporaries. He was deeply respected by all, including his critics. So he was a good guy overall. And Anselm was largely Augustinian in his understanding of theology, uh, that God's grace is the a priori, or the prior necessity to salvation. So, as a reminder, when we talk about Augustinian theology, what Augustine did is he believed the Bible, but articulated that the nature of salvation is such as that man is so wrecked in sin that he has to respond to God only if God first responds to him. So it's truly of grace. And so what we understand as good Reformed people is that we are totally, what, depraved, and that man needs something from God to act prior to us coming to God. That's Augustinian. And you will find that throughout church history, a lot of Roman Catholic theologians prior to this time were indebted to Augustinian philosophy. Now, the problem is that over time, over the centuries, Churches in the West, when we say Roman Catholic churches, their theologians began to adopt Augustine, but didn't quite accept everything about Augustine. And so what you would have by the time of Anselm and Aquinas in the medieval era is you have this, oh, we like Augustine, but we disagree with almost everything he says kind of mentality. That they believe that God's grace acts initially, but the extent of it is largely not Augustinian. It's what we would call semi-Pelagian, or that there is some synergistic or cooperation between man and God. Yeah, God opens up the door, but really we walk in and we have to do the rest. Or God opens the door, but we must maintain. Or some type of hybrid. It depends on the theologian, depends on the region that we're talking about. But by and large, majority of Western Roman Catholic theologians were Augustinian-ish, but not completely 
Anselm, however, was largely Augustinian, so he was not that terrible in his theology. Uh, so that's important to know about him. Uh, so what's the key thing to know about Anselm? Well, if you remember only one thing about him, it's this, that Anselm wrote the first systematic theology book on the atonement in church history. The first. Now, there's so much that can be said that I'll mention later, but that is interesting because up until that point, the church believed and taught about the atonement, but a full orb articulation hadn't really been done. But in the province of God, it began in the West, at least with this Anselm guy. And he wrote a work called in Latin, Cordeus Homo, which means why did God become man? And in it, Anselm wrote that the nature of the atonement was one of satisfaction, that Christ satisfies the demands of justice on behalf of sinners. Now, you might think, well, no duh, that's, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? Well, no, you'll be wrong, because over the course of time, the prevailing view, at least in Western churches, was a theory of the atonement called the ransom theory of the atonement, which I've mentioned in the past before. Now, we will talk more in a little bit about the ransom theory, but Anselm really was the major opponent in the West that said, you know what, I think the Western churches have this wrong. I believe we need to go back to the Bible, and if we do, the nature of the atonement is something completely different. And so his book, Cordeus Omo, Why Did God Become Man?, was significant and broke with major Roman Catholic theology up until that day. Uh, and the satisfaction theory that he put forward argues with greater clarity and depth what the reformers would later articulate as something called penal substitution atonement. How many of you have heard that before? And that is more closely what the Bible teaches as the nature of the atonement. And again, another public service announcement. I'm going to discuss the satisfaction theory thing, the ransom theory thing here in a bit, uh, because we learned repetition, but I'm just clipping on. So let's look at the next theological splasher in the theological pond. And that's a guy named Peter Lombard. So you have Aquinas, you have Anselm, and then this guy named Peter Lombard. He is the next major theological figure in the medieval era. He lived in the 12th century, born literally on the year 1100, and died at the age of 60. Now, he was the first... What do you need to know about him? He was the first Roman Catholic theologian to officially define the number of sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church to the number seven. And those seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church still held today are baptism, confirmation, communion, penance, marriage, ordination, and then something called extreme unction, or you might have heard of it as last rites. And we will talk about those more here in a little bit. But Lombard taught that the means of grace that God has given to secure salvation for a believer's soul was dispensed, like Pez, through seven particular sacraments that if you take in part, you get grace that sustains your soul unless you commit a mortal sin. And so he believed that sacraments were not merely signs of God's activity in the soul, but were actual sanctifying grace for you to be justified at the end of time. And by the 13th century, scholastic theologians in the West coined a Latin phrase called ex opere operata, which means by virtue of the thing performed. And Lombard, being a scholastic theologian, reasoning through this concept that he posited was this, 
that the sacraments are ordained by God, and as long as they operate and are performed to the recipient, they work no matter what, no matter the state of the recipient receiving the grace or the state of the priest giving the sacrament. He believed by virtue of the sacrament itself being performed, men can be saved and right with God, regardless of their state or the state of the priest, which was a big deal because one of the critiques of the Roman Catholic Church that we'll talk about in a few lessons was the massive immorality among the priesthood. It became almost a laughingstock that you, in the medieval era, the priests were associated with playboys and players and, and, and vile men. But by virtue of the sacrament being performed, they still held the keys of the kingdom of God to dispense salvation to men. Uh, And that comes from Peter Lombard's theology. Lombard is significant in history because he wrote a work called The Four Sentences, or just The Sentences. You might hear it one way or the other. It became this chief theological textbook of the medieval era. So you have... Aquinas's theology, summary of theology, but the main practical textbook for upcoming bishops and theologians of the medieval era was Lombard's The Sentences because it was unique. Where you had a big fat tome with Aquinas, you had a very small book that was more propositional, if A, then B, in terms of stating uh, doctrine, the reason for the doctrine, a quote from the church fathers on the doctrine and arguments against the doctrine that he trained his students on. And so the sentences became the chief foundational theological training manual for the medieval era. And it was included all the way up until Martin Luther's day. Martin Luther, as a Roman Catholic theologian, studied. This was his grade school book while at school, and he actually was grateful for the work that Lombard did in providing a lot of this organization of theology that God used in his grace to help Martin Luther think more rationally about the scriptures, even though it contained error. So Lombard is famous for his defining the seven sacraments, for his development of the four book sentences that redefined all of the scholastic theologians of the medieval era. Again, so much more can be said, but we're clipping through because we're talking about a thousand years. The next thing are the key theological events of the medieval era. We're going to go all the way back in our DeLorean to 529 AD. So again, we've been talking about the 1100s, 1200s. We're going back in time a little bit to 529 to a Council of Orange. Not the fruit orange, but a place called Orange. The Council of Orange was significant because in it, we see that the Roman Catholic Church argued in favor of Augustinian monergism over semi-Pelagian philosophy and framework. What does that mean? You're like, come on, Jonathan, you're using a lot of big words. Well, i got to use big words because they help define things. So I'm going to clarify. So what is significant about Orange? In the Council of Orange, you had a debate on the nature of grace and sin that was almost a repeat of Augustine and Pelagius a few hundred years earlier. What's significant about Orange is that the churches in the West, Roman Catholic churches, said the official position of the Roman Catholic Church is some version of Augustinian monergism, that God sovereignly gives grace only to the elect people of God and acts prior for God's people to come to them. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because that officially codified some 
vestige, some framework of solid biblical teaching that kept the West from plummeting into a complete chaos. Because by the time of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, a lot of people recognized, man, the church in the West has a lot of theology that's off. It is not biblical. Well, one of the means of grace that God used was the faithful teaching of Augustine on grace alone, to the elect alone, that preserved some faithfulness amongst a deteriorating Roman Western Catholic Church. And so in the grace of God, the Council of Orange helped preserve some line of faithfulness in the West that would be preserved in different pockets by different men and eventually up to Martin Luther in the time of the Protestant Reformation. So Orange was significant because it articulated that theological framework of sin and grace that would be preserved up until the time of the Protestant Reformation where the reformers would then capitalize and reform upon the Council of Orange. But we're going to move on. The next theological controversy, we're going to go 300 years up into the 800s. The next one was on communion. It is very interesting to note that the East and West had debated on communion for several centuries, but in the West, there were disagreements on the nature of communion, but it wasn't until the 800s where it started to get hot. And I have told you before, if you study church history, some of the most amount of blood shed by Christians to other Christians come from the nature of communion. Christians have so valued communions that they would be willing to die and kill one another for it. And this was another match of controversy uh, in the 800s, and it has to deal with two guys that both start with the name R. Again, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm just pelting you with stuff, but remember, the main ideas are what's most important. It comes from two guys, Radbertus and Retramnus. I know. Radbertus and Retramnus. If you remember it at the end, you'll get brownie points. I don't have any brownies, but one day when those brownies materialize, you'll get them. The, third, the first theological controversy over communion happened by a man who was actually uh, an abbot of a monastery. He was the chief guy in a monastery. His name was Radbertus. And Radbertus wrote a book called Concerning the Body and Blood of Jesus Christ in 833. And in that, Radbertus said the elements of bread and wine actually converted into the body and blood of Jesus. He actually says that the bread and the wine so transform into the body and blood of Jesus that they are the exact physical nature of Jesus in the womb of Mary. He was the first major voice in the step to Aquinas where you would get the full orb transubstantiation doctrine. That was significant that he said that. Now, in contrast over against this Radbertus guy was another man named Tramnus. He was a monk and was interesting because history is full of irony. It drips with irony is that Retramnus was actually the under monk of Radbertus in the same monastery. It's literally a Star Wars master and apprentice showdown where you have this abbot, Radbertus, thinking that transubstantiation is rad, so to speak. That was my fun mnemonic, by the way, of how do I remember these names? Uh, um, is that Retramnus? Radbertus thought the transubstantiation was rad, but in my mind, I said, no, it's bad, so rad bad is how I remember it. Stupid how we learn, but that's how I remember. Hopefully your mind is better than mine. Um, against Radbertus was his understudy, Retramnus, writing 
in the same monastery against his spiritual father. And he publishes a book with a very similar title called Concerning the Body and Blood of the Lord. He basically rips off the title of his master and says to all the world, my master is wrong because he argued the bread and wine never convert into the actual physical substance of Christ, but simply remained bread and wine. He says that it only is the body and blood in a spiritual sense to feed the soul of the believer as he communes with Christ. Now, that is very similar to what we would hold to as Reformed believers and Calvinists who believe that we truly fellowship in, with Jesus. At communion, you're not eating the literal baby flesh of Jesus, but you are feeding on him in a spiritual sense as you remember his work past and look forward to his work future. Radbertus, excuse me, Retramnus believed this view, and he wasn't the only one, but he was the first major voice in the West to articulate this against a growing popularity of this Eucharist becoming the actual body and blood of Jesus. Now, in the West, Western churches would be divided on the issue of transubstantiation for centuries past then. So from the 800s on, the West would not be unified. So depending on where you went to church, your priest may or may not hold to this view when he performed Mass. That is significant to note because not all medieval theologians, not all medieval churches were heresy or heretics with a capital H. We've got to be mindful of that. It's important for us as Protestants to make sure we know our history well enough that we are not ungracious or idiotic when we talk to our opponents. Because if we say, oh, everyone believed this thing back then and was wrong, well, that's a hasty generalization in terms of logical fallacies. And we don't want to do that. There are many faithful priests and bishops and theologians that said, no, this is not right. This is heresy. But as we'll soon uh, unpack, it wasn't until 1215 that the church agreed. But at 1215, at the Fourth Lateran Council, the Roman Catholic Church officially declared transubstantiation as the official dogma. All right, so we talked about Council of Orange as one of the key theological events. We talked about the communion issue. Now we go to the final major issue of the medieval era. Again, there's many, but I want to say the overarching is on predestination. All right. So we like that word as reformed people. Predestination. This controversy uh, happened around the same time as the communion controversy in the 800s by a, a man named Gotchak. Gotchak is a fun name. This monk named Gotchak sparked massive controversy when he was teaching about the nature of grace and sin and monergism, or the one-way grace of God that Augustine taught. Uh, as a student of theology, Gotchak primarily studied Augustine. He thought that he would be safe with Augustine, that he was a tried and true sound theologian. He didn't trust modern theologians. He went to the Bible and Augustine to frame his theology. And in so doing, he believed that Western churches deviated from a proper understanding of grace and sin. And he preached the gospel as a monk to the peasants and to other churches as a very sound Augustinian. Grace alone, to the elect alone, faith alone. Now, you would think that would be cool and he'd be, he'd be all right. And people would be like, yeah, this is great. Well, that caused much of controversy because, like I mentioned before... Many Roman Catholic theologians nodded to Augustine, 
but they rejected most of Augustine. And so this sparked massive controversy. As Gottschalk cherished the doctrines of grace, he talked not using the same language as later reformers, but as he taught total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. He taught that to such a degree that other Roman Catholic bishops and priests were like, you are a heretic. And they called several synods or small regional meetings to discuss this man and whether he was a heretic or not. So he got in trouble. It's important to note before we go on with Gottschalk's life that Gottschalk was the first in church history. This is important. He was the first in church history to argue for limited atonement and double predestination. All right. What do I mean by that? What I don't mean is that the church never believed it. The church had believed at some point these doctrines. Uh, we must affirm that there is no quintessential Christian doctrine that has ever, quote, been new or novel in the church. There's nothing that we can discover in 21st century America church today that the apostolic fathers didn't know or believed. Because the faith once for all delivered to the saints has been delivered to the saints the church has always had the witness of the core essential doctrines of Christianity. Now, some regions may have a better understanding than others. Some guys might articulate it better than others, but it's always been there. So we have to keep that in mind. So when I say he's the first in church history to argue for limited atonement and double predestination, he's the first to really put pen and paper with the specific articulation or the depth of argument. He actually went further than Augustine did. Augustine did not teach double predestination. And what I mean by that is that God saves the elect and according to Augustine, just overlooks the others. Gottschalk argued, no, scripturally, God saves the elect and chooses whom he will damn at the same time. And so that was what he articulated. And he was the first in church history to write the words, quote, Christ died only for the elect. Although we can deduce that from Scripture, the phrase of Christ died for the elect, limited atonement, definite atonement, whatever you know it, is indebted to the articulation of this man, Gottschalk. Augustine, like I mentioned, only taught that God elected some and then just merely passed overs, but his predestination of the lost and the saved were different. And Gottschalk said, no, scripturally, God is active in the same way to both. Well, in the course of time, like I mentioned, several synods were convened to evaluate whether he was a heretic. And at the Synod of Chiersey in 849, under the influence of Gottschalk's chief opponent, this guy, Archbishop Hinsmar, very nefarious-sounding name, uh, they condemned Gottschalk as a heretic officially. Specifically, he was condemned for teaching in Latin Gemini predestinatio, which means double predestination. It was on the issue of predestination that the Roman Catholic Church said, we cannot stomach this anymore. You deviate from what we have been teaching for centuries. Therefore, you're a heretic. And Gottschalk was immediately thrown in prison, and he was beaten within an inch of his life. They chose to not kill him, but he eventually died later of his wounds in prison. Now, during this time, several church leaders actually came to Gottschalk's defense in outrage of his maltreatment, and they came to his defense uh, uh, to be his champion, including 
Our man Retramnus, the same one that argued that the body and blood were, uh, uh, excuse me, that the, the bread and wine were just the bread and wine, not the body and blood, he actually came to the defense of Gottschalk and brought on him in more controversy. But Retramnus and several others in the West came to the Synod of Chersey and protested, saying, Is Gottschalk not just teaching the Bible? Is Gottschalk not just teaching what? Uh, we have all what Augustine essentially taught. It may not be the exact same, but it's essentially the same. And so, Gottschalk died as a witness to what we would know as the classical doctrines of grace. And this is all the way back in the 800s. And again, we learn by repetition, it's important to note that no major doctrine of the church has ever been without a witness since the time of the apostles. The faith, once for all delivered to the saints, was delivered and has not been lost. Some people might know it better than others or articulate it worse than others, but that doesn't mean that the truth has never been believed at some point throughout the church. We will never discover, quote, new doctrine. We only recover the doctrine that had always been there, and there might be some that articulate it better than others and more clarifying for others, which we find in the Protestant Reformation. One of the arguments, and this is getting ahead a little bit, but it's important. Uh, First of all, how many of you know that Roman Catholicism is on the rise in America today? Did you know that one of the number one converts of, of Americans to Roman Catholicism are former Reformed people? You know why? It's because they don't listen to church history lessons. It's because they don't know their church history, so they're duped by the apologists of the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the things you're going to hear is you're going to encounter a Roman Catholic who says, Martin Luther invented a novelty. Justification by faith alone was never taught prior in, the church, in church history up until Martin Luther. And that is not true. That is not true. No essential Christian doctrine has ever been, quote, newly discovered. It's just been better clarified. And that's all the Protestant Reformation did. So that's important to note with Gottschalk. When we talk about first in church history to do X, Y, Z, they weren't the first. The doctrines come from God's word. That's the original upheld by the apostles, disseminated in space and time with greater, with greater witness and clarity. That is what we must believe. So moving on, the last major key theological event is the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. Again, I know there's a lot of names and dates, but we learn repetition. If you've heard me say it before a billion times, I don't care that you remember every date. It's not significant. I don't care if you remember every name. What's most important is if you can keep track of the major train of ideas, the major train of ideas and a rough timeline, that's all the history, that's all that we can do with history. Uh, Unless you're a history nerd, know the general flow and you're going to be okay. So the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, why is this significant? If you remember nothing else about the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, we can say this. The Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 is where we can say Roman Catholicism truly began. Now, history is never that neat. It had been working in time up to this point. But in the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, Fourth Lateran Council meeting is the fourth meeting of a council at a place called Lateran, which was the house of St. John Lateran uh, that was in Italy. So at this Fourth Lateran Council, the Western churches convened together under the heading of the Pope and officially declared several things. The first among 70 decrees, I'm not going to go through all 70 decrees, and you're like, thank God. The first major one is transubstantiation is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. 
What that means is you believe that the bread and wine truly become the body and blood of Jesus. You're actually eating Jesus' baby flesh. But beyond that, they adopted Aquinas' understanding of it being sacrificial. So it actually forgives sins. So if you believe that you're eating the body and blood of Jesus, and that in so doing, you are re-sacrificing Christ on your behalf, you believe a different gospel. And so this is where it was birthed. Because up until this point, there were different opinions on this. But no, in the West, to belong to the Western Apostolic Roman Catholic Church, you have to believe this. Which is why we say in 1215, this is where the Roman Catholic Church began as we know it. Because the heart of it is transubstantiation and communion and all that. Beyond that, we see they also made a decree about the last wave of the Crusades that Joshua mentioned a few weeks ago. And and on top of that, it also made a requirement that Christians take communion at least once a year because most Christians did no longer took communion, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, And also that they had to confess at least once a year to a priest their sins. So, so much more could be said, but because of time, we're moving on. Finally, key theological issues of the medieval era. First, the atonement. And remember who was the guy who wrote the first atonement book in church history? Anselm, we're going to go back to him. It was during the medieval age that the church took a more careful examination of the atonement. And they asked the question, what did the death of Jesus actually accomplish? How was it accomplished? And why did it occur in the way that it did? They even asked the question, could God have become a goat? That sounds stupid, but to the scholastic theologians who were trying to make the Christian faith reasonable, they asked the question, did God have to become a man? Could he have become a goat? Why did Jesus, why was he born? Why couldn't he just uh, zap down like Star Trek onto earth and go on the cross? They asked these questions. Now, in the providence of God, he decided that the church would wrestle with the issue of the nature of Christ's atonement almost a thousand years after Christ rose from the dead. The first major theological controversies of the church were about the nature of God and the nature of Christ as the God-man. You had small splashes of controversy with predestination and communion. And then finally, by the time of the 11 1200s, you have the church in the West, at least, saying, all right, what did Jesus actually do on the cross? Let's really look at this. Well, enter Anselm in explaining a more biblical, faithful exposition of it because historically the church in the west taught the ransom theory which i mentioned before now before i go into the ransom theory a few things all the churches east and west always believe that what jesus did on the cross had multiple purposes forgave sin defeat the devil bring healing to the soul recreate a new humanity from fallen adam so the east and west would not argue with any of those points What we are asking, though, when pressed with the question, what is the primary or the chief feature of the atonement? That's what we're getting at. What is the main thing that Jesus did? For the Eastern Orthodox, we talked about atonement as primarily victory over death and theosis, becoming like God. And in the West, churches had various answers until around the 500s, which by and large, Western Roman Catholic churches believed in the ransom theory. And what is that? Well, it taught that Christ's death on the cross was a ransom, which means a payment, to Satan to purchase humanity from sin. They believed that Satan held legal claims over humanity since Adam and Eve worshipped him in the garden. 
And because of the fall, they were under the dominion of the God of this age, as the Bible calls Satan. And so Jesus had to pay the God of this age, Satan, a fine to release humanity from his grip. Jesus, according to the view as the Son of God, offered his life as a ransom to Satan, paying the blood price to Satan in the place of sinners. Satan could kill and enslave the Son of God, and Satan thought he had victory over God. However, what Satan didn't realize was the resurrection. Satan didn't realize that Jesus would rise again three days later from the dead. So, in the ransom theory, Jesus outwits the devil. He pays the ransom to free sinners from Satan's clutches and rises again. So Satan neither has humanity or Jesus. He lost it all. Now, C.S. Lewis, you all know him, right? As a master medieval literature nerd, he draws upon the theme of the ransom theory in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What happens? Edmund betrays his siblings over gluttony for Turkish delights, right? You guys remember that? And in so doing, he falls under the dominion of who? The white witch. And the great lion Aslan, he's what? The king of Narnia. He bargains with the witch for Edmund's life. The white witch accepts Aslan's plea and bargain. And she revels in her apparent triumph over the great lion. Kills the lion at the stone table and believes she won. And goes out now to take over the rest of Narnia. But what happens? Aslan tricked the witch, didn't he? He tricks the witch because of the deeper magic that the witch was unaware of. That if a willing victim takes the place of death on behalf of another, that the stone table would crack and would reverse death itself. So where did Lewis get that? Ransom theory. What medieval theologians believed happened in the nature of the cross. However, contrast that with what I believe is the biblical, more faithful exposition that Anselm talked about in his book, Cordeus Omo. Anselm argues, no, it's not that. It's satisfaction that God in Christ satisfies the demands of God's justice. And that's what happens in the cross. According to Anselm, payment was made not to Satan, but to God himself on behalf of the justice that he is owed. According to Anselm, sin is withholding the honor and glory due to God from his creation. Sin isn't seen as primarily a falling short of doing what we ought, but it's an actual offense to God that demands satisfaction. It is seen primarily as a debt. No man can be right with God with if he has this debt. He has to pay it off, hence satisfaction. But how can sinful man satisfy this debt? Well, according to Anselm, this debt is an infinite debt. Why? Because we sin against an infinitely holy God. So only an infinite payment could pay that debt. But how could a finite person pay an infinite debt to an infinite God? Well, and enter, the, uh, according to Anselm, the incarnation. Anselm argues that it meant God himself had to become a man. Hence the title of his book, Cordeus Oma. Why did God become man? Because only a God-man could satisfy the demands of God. Because being God, Jesus could pay an infinite payment to the Father. But the payment was not from God himself, but man. Man owes God obedience, right? Well, that's why Jesus became man. As the God-man, Jesus offers an infinite satisfaction to the Father as a man. And could do 
an infinite payment because he was God. Here's a quote from Anselm himself. Satisfaction cannot be made unless there be someone able to pay God for man's sin, something greater than all that is beside God. Now, nothing is greater than all that is beside God except God himself. None, therefore, can make this satisfaction except God. And none ought to make it except man, because man sinned. If, then, it be necessary that the kingdom of heaven be completed by a man, and if man can't be admitted unless the aforesaid satisfaction for sin is made, and if God only can make that, and only man ought to make the satisfaction, then, necessarily, one must take it who is both God and man. That was a mouthful, right? But he essentially said everything I just taught you. And this is a clear example of how scholastic theologians reason. Do you see how logical and presuppositional they were? They did that ad nauseum because they believed the doctrine was important and comported with reason, and it does. Anselm's work on the atonement was groundbreaking. Remember, it didn't teach anything novel, but just clarify what the Bible had always taught, that the Western churches had, by and large, forgotten, and that the reformers would later reclaim and reform and articulate with greater clarity. Moving on, the next major theological issue is the Mass. Because over time, the church began to view corporate worship primarily as a sacramental event. It went from the biblical apostolic meeting of preaching the word, signified by the sacrament of baptism and Lord's Supper, to primarily being a dispenser of grace for the salvation of the world. It became a church of sacraments over the church of the word of God. Now, when I say mass, you all know what that word means? If not, it's okay. If I say, what was that? Wait. It does not mean wait, no. If I say the word dismissal, you guys know what that means, right? D-I-S-M-I-S-S-A-L, dismissal. It come, we get the word dismissal from the word misa where we get the word mass. It literally means to go. In the course of time, churches at the end of the preaching of the word of God would have the priests say, ecclesia, meaning the church, et missa est, church, go, you are dismissed. That's where mass comes from. So when you read early church fathers and you read the word mass, you can't associate it with the baggage of Roman Catholic theology today. That's, that's, that's not... That's anachronistic. That's not in line. It just meant that their corporate worship time was called Mass. Because after the preaching of the Word of God, which was for believers and unbelievers, the priest would say, go, the church is dismissed, to tell unbelievers, you're to leave the gathering. Because up until a few centuries after Christ, the church practiced what was called closed communion, meaning... It was only open to baptized believers. Unbelievers actually left the church building and the church gathering because only believers partook of the Lord's Supper. That's where we get Mass. Now, what we define as Mass in the West change over time to Roman Catholic understanding. Uh, And in the course of time, transubstantiation, communion, became the heart of the Mass, as we talked about earlier. And the seven sacraments because of Peter Lombard. What were they? Again, baptism, communion, confirmation, Lord's Supper, uh, last rites, penance, and ordination. All of these were seen as dispensing grace to justify the soul. In Roman Catholic theology, your sanctification is your justification. 
They believe that you are progressively being justified in time. How? By you cooperating with these sacraments. That's at the heart of the Mass. And the chief focus was communion. That communion itself was the chief means of saving your soul. Why? Because in communion, what are you doing? You're eating the body and blood of Jesus as a re-sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. And so if you believe that, it is a very solemn, sacred event, and you would want to take it often, because you sin often throughout the week. So go eat Jesus more. Come on, eat him every day. Which is why you got a lot of Roman Catholics going every day to Mass, because they believe, I need this sacrifice again and again and again. That's what, by the time of Martin Luther, that's what the church was, was a church believing that its righteousness before God was dependent upon your participation in the mass of these sacraments to ensure you stand before God. Does that sound like works-based salvation, church? Is that biblical? No. But that's what it devolved to in the West. Thomas Aquinas argued that the Eucharist, the body and bl- excuse me, the bread and the wine became the body and blood of Jesus. He did that. He argued that way because of Aristotle. You can thank Aristotle, a pagan, for influencing Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholics. He believed, Aristotle believed that everything had both what's called a substance and an accident. The accident is what it looks like on the outside. The substance is intrinsic, and you can never fully perceive it with your mind. It's true regardless of what you perceive. So Aquinas, when he looked at Scripture and he's seen that that the Eucharist is talked about in body and blood language, said, all right, Aristotle is the man. This is how it works. God's grace works through the priest and changes the substance of the bread and the wine. It looks like bread and wine, but inside it's really Jesus' body and blood. Just like a football. What's inside of a football? It's pigskin and what? Filled with air. Transubstantiation would say, what if by God's grace, the inside of that turned from air to helium? It's different now, isn't it? It looks like a football, but it's not a football. That's what he argued, and that's how he reasoned, and that seemed acceptable to the Roman Catholics, and so they said this articulates reasonably this mystery. And now you add that with it being a re-sacrifice to forgive sins, you get another gospel. And that's heresy that the Roman Catholics still believe today. Moving on, Aquinas, as I mentioned, also redefined grace and sin. He redefined grace and sin into two categories, that sin was either venial or mortal. Venial means pardonable, lying, stealing, disobeying your parents, that those are sins that if you commit, they don't damn you to hell, but you still have to confess them before God, and you still need to do penance for. You still got to prove to God that you're sorry. Mortal sins, however, like adultery or murder or idolatry, if you commit those sins, Aquinas taught that you actually lose grace. It's mortal because it kills grace in your soul. So let's step back for a moment. Aquinas introduced a concept that Roman Catholics adopted in the medieval era that believed that baptism 
entered you into the Christian life, washes away all previous sins up until your baptism. So you are at ground zero. You're right with God. You're innocent and you're pure. The moment you sin, you have debt with God that has to be paid off before you see God because God demands perfection. Grace through the sacraments can forgive sin and help you, but basically you're playing a video game of life where you're earning grace or losing grace. And as long as you got grace in the gauge by the time you die, you have the potential being with God. But if you die without your gauge being full, you go to a place called purgatory where you're further purged and refined from all of your sin debt that comes from Aquinas. And then you get his concept of the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is the concept that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was so meritorious that he has a storehouse of gold brownie points for sinners that can be dispensed by the Pope and the Catholic Church through these sacraments to help alleviate time in purgatory to the penitent. The treasury of merit is the concept that you must obey God. If you fail, you owe God a debt that must be paid off. You don't automatically go to hell in Roman Catholic theology as long as you don't have a mortal sin, but you're not fully right yet. So how do you gain that righteousness? Well, you have to work it, or others can work on your behalf. Jesus has infinite merit in this treasury, but Roman Catholic theologians believe that not only Jesus, but Mary and other saints also offer merit to help the sinner get righteous before God by paying off their sin debt. They believe that saints, they redefine the term saint, meaning as one who is so holy that they have paid off their sin debt before they died. And so they go automatically to be with God in heaven face to face. Now, what of their extra works? So if a saint paid off all their sin debt while still breathing and do more meritorious work, what happens to them? Well, they go to the treasury of merit. So all of these saints throughout church history that have paid off their sin debt and have done above and beyond what God asks goes to this treasury that the Pope can unlock with the keys of heaven and dispense for you, 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 and you, depending on what he tells you to do. Well, that's another gospel, isn't it? It's another gospel because who's providing the righteousness? Other people, but Jesus. Well, couldn't Jesus just provide it all? Well, yeah, but he doesn't. Well, how does the Pope know that there is enough merit left? Is there an abacus? Is there an accounting system? Does St. Peter have an accountant? Does he work remote now because of COVID? Uh, no, there's no. And according to Roman Catholic theology, there is no accounting system. There is no, they just know, all they know is that there's enough. That's all they know. There will always be enough in that treasury. Uh, but how is dispense is up to the Pope. Now, if that was the case, then why doesn't the Pope just unlock it all for everyone? Right? That was the third thesis of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, by the way. As he began to reclaim this justification by faith alone, he said, why doesn't the Pope out of Christian charity just unlock all this merit then for everyone? And he would later say, 
Or how about looking back at the Bible that Jesus accumulated all the merit for all of his people that's unlocked automatically for all time by faith? Hence, introduction into the Reformation. That concludes our time. Next week, our next lesson, Josh is going to be talking about Christopher Columbus and the new, and the new world because it coincides with this time. Uh, and then we'll be talking about the road to Reformation. We'll be talking about the reforming voices in the West because not everyone believed all this crazy stuff that we just talked about. Remember, it was a slow boil theologically to get here through many wrong compromises. My last note before we conclude. Well, how did the Western church get there? A few things. First, the church in the West compromised with Greek philosophy really fast. And because of theological presuppositions of either Plato or Aristotle that we've talked about, they came to wrong conclusions theologically because they borrowed pagan thinking and not biblical thinking. So what does that mean for us? It means that guys love your Bible and believe that it's sufficient to equip you for every good work. It is sufficient for your doctrine. Now, is it wrong to know what pagan people believe? No. But be very cautious in how reverent you are about these so-called spiritual, reasonable men. Aristotle and Plato, you shouldn't be freaked out by them if you ever read them. It's not sin to read them. But you don't go to them for your theology. And you better not reverence them because you'll get into problems, just like the early church and the medieval church did. Also... Why do we get there? As we've learned from other past lessons, the church in the West began to decline in its literacy because of the fall of Rome. And one of the issues with that is it compromised her teaching of the word of God because they said, well, since men can't read, we need to picture it for them. So we'll picture it through sacraments and all these bells and whistles. Well, why not just preach the word? Because people can still hear. And you can also teach them to read, which is what the Reformation would proclaim, by the way. Reclaiming preaching of the word because men still have ears to hear, but also men should be able to read the word. Well, the medieval church didn't do that by and large. It thought that uh, it is better to compromise and just picture the word instead of preach the word. Lastly, one of the reasons how I got here was because the word was actually shut up from most people. Because the Western churches in wanting to preserve the Latin translation of the Bible believe that the liturgy should not be changed, that the precedent of Latin mass was so important that it should be maintained in Latin because if the common person were to read the Bible for himself, it would cause heresies all over the place. Wrong. Yes, will more heresies abound by a man just reading in his bedroom? Some hick reading his Bible in KJV? Will he spat off wrong stuff? Sure. But will the truth come out? Absolutely. More truth will come out when you get the word of God to the people of God in the language of the people. So, again, everything that we've talked about for lots of lessons for months culminated to this. There's so much more that can be said, so much more depth, but we don't have the time. Church history is too complex. But I'm going to pray, and if there's time for questions, 
we can do a few questions. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your providence and history that you're saving your people. You sanctify your church with all the flaws, uh, spot, wrinkles, and blemishes. You are ironing those out. You are cleaning them up. I pray you'd help us to believe that you have always preserved your gospel and your word because you promised that you would. Help us to know how you have been reigning for 2,000 years so we can better love you and preach your truth to those in darkness. In your name we pray, amen.